Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Right in the middle of Hanukkah, Dan is going to do a brief presenta- brief presentation on on Hanukkah. Um, we we had a long discussion about this the, this afternoon. He started at forty minutes. Okay, he's going to do a brief presentation on Hanukkah, and then we're going to have the Bible study on Hebrews. And uh, then we're going to have sufganyot for dessert. And Cheryl's been baking all afternoon. I gave her permission to leave early to go home and make uh, sufganyot. Now, sufganyot is a donut, and it's got to be made in oil because that, you know, the, the thing about Hanukkah is the oil, and, the, and Dan will explain all that. Uh, so when, whenever you have Hanukkah food, it's, it's something cooked in oil. And in Israel, oftentimes in the States, they'll make latkes, potato latkes, pancakes. Uh, but in Israel, they make sufgan yot. So this is our version of sufgan yot. The, only, the major difference is in Israel, there are jelly in it. We don't put jelly in it. Um, but you did put raisins. Do you have raisins and plains? Just raisins. Okay. It's good. Trust me. You know, I tested it before I came. Okay. So we're going to learn some things tonight that we've probably learned before. I prepared this presentation for kids, so hopefully you all enjoy it. Oh, my little ones are coming up. Hey, there's some seats right here. If you guys are going to behave, you could sit right here. <laughs> oh, she's got she's to work on the, uh, the cameras. Okay, let's see here. There we are. Okay, <clears throat> so the first thing that I would like to do is teach you how to correctly say this word because a lot of us um, end up saying it wrong. And there's a lot of words in English, okay, that are Hebrew in their origin that are said differently because of Yiddish. Have I lost you already? Okay. For instance, the Bible word for the books of Moses is Torah. That's how you say it in Hebrew, Torah. But Yiddish, they take it and they switch the way the syllables are pronounced. So it becomes, instead of of Torah, it becomes Torah. Same thing with Chanukah becomes Chanukah. Okay, and you've got to say the ch. That's why sometimes it'll be with an H, and sometimes it'll be with a CH. Okay, so it all starts, this thing is going to fall off my ear. It all starts uh, with this guy, okay, and he is, he is not a good guy, okay. His name is Antiochus. Uh, he proclaimed himself to be called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. Now, when he talks about God being manifested, he's not talking about Jehovah. He's talking about uh, the Greek gods. And primarily in his mind was the Greek god Zeus. 
he also had some things written about him regarding Jupiter. And so, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a wicked Syrian king, okay, from the area of Syria. And he worshipped false gods. He believed in false gods. I'll get this thing right uh, in a minute. Okay, there is a, a, a bust of him, okay, of Antiochus Epiphanes, about 170 years before Jesus, and I just rounded up for the kids, okay? 168 B.C., uh, he attacked the Jewish people and made worshiping God illegal, okay? He made, it, he made it illegal to worship the God of Israel. And so um, this was 168 B.C., attacking Jerusalem, and a lot of Jewish people at that point in time, a couple hundred years before Jesus, it was very well Hellenized, okay, by Alexander the Great, and uh, he was known as like the Apostle Paul of Hellenism, okay? He wanted to spread Hellenism, the Greek religion, everywhere. And so by then, a lot of Jewish people were like, eh, we don't practice, you know, worshiping the God of Israel anyway. I mean, we got, you know, Zeus and Jupiter and Saturn and, you know, Diana and all those different things. He put a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem, okay? Now, this is just kind of a depiction of, of, of what he did. This is not the actual statue that he actually put there. But uh, it, it makes the representation of what was actually happening. Here's Antiochus. Here's a bust of him. Here's a statue of Zeus. Do you get it? Okay. He said, I am Zeus incarnate, basically. Okay. He set up an altar to Jupiter, but he put a statue of Zeus uh, in the temple compound. And that statue had his... Um, what do you call it, likeness, okay? He wanted everybody to think that he was Zeus incarnate. <clears throat> he forced the priests, and the kids like that picture, okay? He forced the priests uh, to sacrifice pigs to the Greek god Jupiter, okay? He built an altar to the Greek god Jupiter, and he forced them to sacrifice pigs on the altar. Now, there were some that complied and some that didn't. We'll get there in a second. Uh, he made a law that if you taught the Bible you'd be killed, okay? So teaching the Bible uh, was illegal. Now, the resistance. You hear the cinematic music in the background, okay? This is Mattathias the priest. And Mattathias, he refused to sacrifice uh, to the false god. He refused to sacrifice to, to Jupiter. And uh, so th somebody else said, okay, hey, I'll do it, okay? Mattathias didn't like that. And he and his family, they killed that man the man that was going to offer this sacrifice. Mattathias was very zealous for the God of Israel. And he not only uh, attacked and killed the man that was going to sacrifice the pig, but attacked the armies of Antiochus that were there in that vicinity. Um, killed the man who went to do it instead. His family, okay, the Maccabees, uh, his family organized a rebellion against Antiochus that lasted three years. And this is one of the interesting things about Hanukkah. Okay, on the 25th of Kislev, Okay, the Hebrew month Kislev. On the 25th of Kislev, 168, Antiochus began his attack, his campaign. 165, Kislev 25th. Three years later to the day, uh, the revolt ended, okay, with Antiochus' armies being defeated uh, by the Maccabees. The hero, Judah Maccabee, okay, shortly after this um, revolt started, uh, Mattathias the priest, he died, okay? And Judah Maccabee, he took up the mantle as the leader uh, of, of the army that was defying Antiochus. 
He's the son of Mattathias. He led an army to recapture the temple. And on the 25th of Kislev, they began to cleanse the temple. Now, the dedication of the temple, and this is where the miracle comes in, okay? Um, there was only enough oil, legend tells us, for one day, okay? And that oil miraculously lasted eight days, long enough for them to build, to, to, to put uh, together more oil, to consecrate more oil uh, for the temple so that they could rededicate the temple, so they could cleanse it and purify it, uh, just like we had to do here after the uh, ham sandwiches, I guess. <laughs> Mark's giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> it's okay. I, I had one, and Bob took a you know, photo of me. Um, there was only enough oil for one day. The oil miraculously lasted for eight days. It was a miracle. That's the miracle of Hanukkah. Now, does anybody want to tell me what Hanukkah means in Hebrew? Anybody? Okay. It means dedication. Okay, that's the Hebrew word for dedication. That's why Hanukkah is referred to as the Feast of the Dedication. That's what it's called in John chapter 10, which is right here. And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, which is what in Hebrew? Hanukkah, okay? And it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Why was it winter on the 25th of Kislev? Because Kislev is roughly equivalent to the Gregorian month December. Okay, and those things change because the Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar and the Gregorian calendar, you know, it's, just, it's all different. But roughly equivalent, okay? John 10, 22 and 23. Now, celebrating Hanukkah today, eight nights of presents. Candles lit each night. Blessings are recited. Games are played with a dreidel. And jelly donuts are eaten, okay? Called sufganyot, okay? Now, I'm going to uh, sh show you what the Hebrew prayers are as we light the candles here tonight, and I'm going to show you how we do it. Now, tonight is the sixth night of Hanukkah. Okay, we're right in the middle of it. But there are seven candles up here. The middle candle is called the Shamash candle. Can everybody say Shamash? Okay, Shamash is Aramaic for servant. And that candle doesn't count towards the eight days. It's a separate candle. And that candle is used to light all of the other candles. Now, in, in the Hebrew mind, things go from right to left, not left to right. So we would start on the first candle. Now, I don't want to drip on the carpet here. Now, the prayer that is said goes like this. There's two of them that I'm going to read tonight. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav which means, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hallows us with his mitzvot, commanding us to kindle the Hanukkah lights. Okay, and I'll start lighting these here. And then the second prayer that is said goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam shehechianu nasim which means, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who performed wondrous deeds for our ancestors in days of old at this season. Okay, and I am lighting these now. 
after I get this last one lit with this really long wick here, I'll put the servant candle in the middle. And the servant candle, the shamash, it stands out from the other eight candles. Okay, now, some connections between Christmas and Hanukkah. Both celebrate God-giving miraculous light. Okay, Jesus said, I am the what? The light of the world. Okay, and he would be a light to lighten the Gentiles, right? Both take place in Israel. Both are celebrated on the 25th of Kislev, okay? And we have a whole, I have it up here, I don't, okay? We did an article or a magazine uh, issue, Israel's Messenger, December of last year, winter of 2017, that was all about the connections between Hanukkah and Christmas. Um, both holidays carry a theme of a servant, okay? Isaiah numerous times calls the Messiah the servant, and he came as a servant, okay? Um, and then we have the servant candle, the shamash, and you can see it there in that uh, diagram. In Hanukkah, the shamash or servant candle is the ninth branch of the menorah. It stands out from the rest. It lights all of the other candles. It's special. Christmas celebrates the Messiah, Jesus, God's servant, coming into the world, as in Isaiah. Using this date to celebrate the birth of the Messiah probably came from Jewish believers. You see, there's a lot of things uh, looking back through history and trying to figure out when uh, Hanukkah was celebrated with a menorah and the practice of lighting the candle lights. And uh, the practice of the shamash candle being introduced, the servant candle to light the others instead of just lighting them all with a, you know, a matchstick or whatever it is that they had. Um, that practice, as far as we can tell from archaeologically, archeolog uh, I didn't say that right, but it goes along with um, an area uh, right around Nazareth in Galilee. I don't remember the name of the uh, place specifically offhand, but it's likely that this Shamish candle in its origin was meant to represent Jesus the Messiah. And trying to figure out a time when they could celebrate the birth of the Messiah, although it's likely that he was rather born in the fall, and that's also in our 2017 issue. We got a whole stack of them on the foyer. If you've never read it, take one home with you. Um, but the idea of celebrating it on the day that they would celebrate the temple being dedicated because of all of the connections between uh, light and the servant and uh, God performing a wondrous miracle. And so... Pick up the issue, you'll get a whole lot more, but I uh, just wanted to share this with you tonight. Do you want me to blow these out, or you want me to leave it burning? Okay, he's going to want you to put your soup gagnote up, and then maybe you'll lose it to him. That's with the Dreidel game. Okay. And um, Dan, when you, when you head out, why don't you turn those lights on over there? So. Okay, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19 tonight. And we'll continue tonight the study of Abraham in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we looked at it initially last week and the earlier verses in Hebrews 11 about uh, Abraham. But when you consider, thank you, uh, a man of faith, uh, biblically speaking, 
uh, probably the preeminent individual would be Abraham. Uh, he learned through his walk with God. And he stumbled and he stumbled and he stumbled. But ultimately, when it came to the ultimate test of his life, he aced it. He passed with flying colors. Uh, and his life ultimately becomes a, a reality of the, of the definition. And we're going to briefly look at the definition again of faith uh, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, because that is so um, foundational to the rest of this chapter. Because it go, on and on it goes, by faith, by faith, by faith. Whether it was uh, Abel whether it was Enoch, whether it's Abraham here. Next week we'll look at uh, Isaac, um, or Jacob, excuse me. Uh, I think it's uh, Jacob next week we'll look at. Um, and all of them, by faith. So, faith, verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, could be translated as the ground, the basis, or the foundation. The Greek word here, substance, is also used for title deed. When you have a title deed, it's yours. You hold on to it. You, it uh, totally belongs to you. Same with the foundation, it's, with, it's what you stand on, or the ground, or the basis. So it's a title deed, it's yours, you claim it for your own. What then is that title deed or foundation of faith? Well, the title deed or the foundation of faith is the Word of God. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Uh, you will not have faith outside of knowing the Word of God. It is intrinsically tied together. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Now, it can by, be by reading, obviously, as well, uh, but I think the reason that hearing is used here and not the reading, how many people in biblical times had a Bible? Very, very few. They were scrolls. They were not books like we have today. Uh, and they were meticulously copied and generally, that scroll, whether it's just the Torah scroll, the five books of Moses, or the, uh, the other books of the Tanakh, they were generally found only in the synagogue. And they would gather together to hear the reading of the Word of God. You didn't have a scroll, generally speaking, in your house. Uh, so, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But in the world we live in today, you could put reading in there. It's, it's just uh, incorporating or uh, digesting, however you want to put it, the Word of God. Uh, it comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So faith comes through the Word of God. That is foundational. Then it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. So things hoped for are things we're assured of. Not maybes. It's not, I hope I get a brand new bike for Christmas or whatever. Uh, hope here is something we know is going to happen. It's something we are assured of happening. Now, then it goes on. It says, the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of faith is the evidence in our lives. 
the conviction in our life, in other words, acting out your faith in your life. If your faith is real, there will be resulting change in your life, even if you haven't seen the end result, no matter what the circumstances are. So it's the evidence of uh, coming forth out of your life. Now, things not seen, promises God has given us. We've never seen them. We've never seen our heavenly home. Uh, we've been promised rewards for faithful service. We haven't seen those rewards. They're not sitting on a shelf somewhere that we can uh, go and uh, look at. Uh, all kinds of different uh, rewards. Things not seen. Uh, we haven't seen God. So faith is always based on the Word of God, and it is evidenced in our life. And that is consistent what we find in the rest of this chapter about these men and women that are talked about. These two parts to faith understand, uh, basing it on Scripture, God's Word, and living in light of it are the basis for understanding the race the rest of the chapter. Now, uh, in verses 8 through 16, uh, and I, only, I highlighted what I want to bring out about what it says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, verse 8 now, obeyed. Verse 11, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. Uh, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. These Old Testament saints, Abraham, Sarah, more than likely Isaac uh, as well, Jacob as well, others uh, certainly would be, could be included in this, never saw the promises, but they were persuaded, they embraced them, and they lived in the reality of that truth as foreigners, as strangers, as sojourners here on earth. This is not our home. Then verse 16, but now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, a heavenly country. They knew there was a heavenly country. They embraced that reality. They lived in light of that. So Abraham and Sarah heard the word of God and obeyed. Oftentimes their obedience was not all that it should be. But through their trials they learned that God was always faithful to what he had promised. Abraham understood with the totality of his being, that God is faithful. Don't ever doubt that. You know, God doesn't want 90% conviction. God doesn't want 98% conviction. God wants you to believe with the totality of your being um, that he is faithful. <clears throat> Although he did not receive all the promises of God, he lived understanding that they were sure as anything can be. He knew and learn that God can't lie nor fail in bringing about his promises. So what we have, starting in verse 17, and we're just looking at three verses, 17, 18, 19. <clears throat> we're now introduced to Abraham, who has been talked about already, and his faith, <clears throat> but the, uh, the ultimate test that he would ever have, that any one of us could ever have. And it starts out, verse 17, by faith Abraham. When he was tried, or tested, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises 
offered up his only begotten son by faith Abraham. Now faith, again, is two things. It's based on the word of God, but it's evidenced in your life. Abraham showed he believed God by willingly offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, Genesis 22, where this account is recorded for us, verses 1 and 2, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, he was put to a test. God told him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. The question is, if you followed the life of Abraham up to this point, how many times did Abraham fail in his walk with God? Yeah, at least three. So, um, you know, think of his wife. You know, willing to give her to Abimelech. Uh, you know, and Abimelech, by the way, is just a title. Uh, you find more than one Abimelech, but they're not the same person. Uh, it's just a, it's a title, like a Caesar uh, is a title, that type of thing. Uh, by faith, Abraham, when he, was, he offered up Isaac. When you read the account in Genesis 22, and we're going to look at that account shortly, there is no hesitation on his part, no questioning on his part. I remember a number of years ago... Um, one of the, the movies that was produced, I think uh, um, there's a man and a woman. I, I don't remember their names, but anyway, uh, it's terrible. They did it. They were there. They were um, New Agers, and they weren't Bible believers. But I remember when they recreated Genesis chapter 22 and Abraham and Isaac, that whole thing. Uh, they had Abraham crying and weeping and I don't want to go with God. I, I don't want to go God and how can you ask, offer to, ask me to kill my son? This is not right. You know, and, and that's how they portrayed um, Abraham. Well, if, as we read the account, we not only find that Abraham obeyed totally, he, he even woke up early in the morning. And I've already always said that if anybody had a right to sleep in that morning, Abraham did. Uh, but he was able to trust totally in God and his promises. He never questioned um, when God asked him to do something. It would be that we could be in that position in our life. Now, he that had received the promises, so by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and then it said, uh, and he that had received the promises. Abraham received the promises. That goes back to Genesis chapter 12. Ultimately, what would become known as the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham received some very basic promises from God. Look at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now Abraham received the promises, and there are three basic promises in these verses, one, two, and three. But if you break it down in all the promises, they're not necessarily all to Abraham, but there are a number of promises here. For example, um, 
I will bless them that bless thee in verse 3. I will curse him that curses thee. That's two promises. If you bless the Jewish people or Abraham and his descendants, you'll be blessed. If you curse the Jewish people and his descendants, the, uh, Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, you will be cursed. Uh, another promise, all families of the earth will be blessed. So you can find in verse 3, three separate promises. And there are other promises, but the, the basic promises that undergird the Abrahamic covenant, verse 1, God had told Abram, leave your country, he was in Iraq, or, or the Chaldees. Get thee out of the, your country, from the, your kindred, uh, from your father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Now, later on in Scripture, and the, the purpose of this tonight is not look at all the promises, but that land is uh, delineated, uh, where the boundaries are, and that the children of Israel would have that land in perpetuity. If I remember correctly, there are about 157 references to the land of Israel belonging to the Jewish people. And uh, words like uh, eternal covenant, um, everlasting, are used numerous times in regard to that land land of Israel, and the promise to the Jewish people. There's an intrinsic tie-in between God's promises to Abraham uh, and the Jewish people, and ultimately the Messiah and the land of Israel. You cannot break that tie-in. It's intrinsic. It's, it's together. It's in, uh, inseparable. So there's the promise of the land. Um, that land's been fought over more than any other land, um, and it, even to this very day. No matter what the world says, no matter what the UN says, no matter what the uh, Democratic Party says, or any other party of uh, any other country, uh, understand the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people, period. It's theirs. It's theirs by promise from God initially to Abram, and then through his descendant, uh, Isaac and Jacob, and the 12 tribes to Israel. And um, it was asked earlier, uh, before we started the Bible study, about uh, where we're going to inhabit, as I remember you, uh, you asked, uh, in the eternal kingdom. Uh, well, there's a heavenly Jerusalem, and it says the kings of the earth, uh, in Revelation chapter 21 and in Revelation chapter 22, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the heavenly Jerusalem. And the heavenly Jerusalem, we know, is at least occupied by uh, the Lord, by God and, and, and the Lord himself. Uh, I believe that the heavenly Jerusalem is occupied by uh, only the church, that that's our dwelling place. Those who are saved from Pentecost to the rapture. On the earth will be the other redeemed people. In the earlier scripture portion, before the trip, church was born, uh, which is at the day of Pentecost, the tribulational saints and the millennium saints. But Israel has a promise to an eternal land inheritance. And on that earth, that recreated earth in the eternal kingdom, there will be an Israel populated by redeemed Jewish people. 
David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, and, and that type of, and other Jewish people that are redeemed that you don't know. And, and the surrounding lands on earth will be populated by other uh, nations, if you will, and uh, there will be obviously order in the eternal kingdom, uh, places of rulership, that type of thing. Uh, the eternal kingdom, New Jerusalem, is always open to everybody. But I think only the church resides there. But the point is that eternal promise of a land will be fulfilled into eternity. It doesn't stop after the millennial kingdom. It continues on into eternity. Abraham got that promise. Secondly, in verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. Um, number of promises there. Abraham would be a great nation from his loins. Uh, he would bless him and make his name great. And he would be, Abraham and his descendants would be a blessing uh, to others. Uh, and that has certainly been true. Uh, we can see that in the medicinal world in all kinds of different ways. But ultimately, there would be a nation. There would be a people. There would be a, uh, a lineage that would come from the loins of Abraham. We know that ultimately through Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the promise. In Genesis 15, uh, God told Abraham that his uh, offspring would number like the, like the stars of the sky. Abraham had that promise. He came to believe it. Now, for a while, he was a little bit um, uh, questioning, right? You know, when, when he was uh, old, 99, and things were looking pretty bleak, remember? You know, who did he, who did he want to call on uh, to help him out? The uh, servant, uh, you know, Eliezer, or, you know, and then, then he also, then he said, well, you know, let, you know, let's have somebody else, and we'll have uh, 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 Ishmael that comes, uh, you know, he, all this trying to do something. Ultimately, God miraculously gave him a son, uh, Isaac. But there's the promise. The third promise. <clears throat> I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curse thee, and in thee all shall, all, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is salvation. Now, verse 2 ultimately comes to fruition in the Messiah, in Jesus. Verse 3 is salvation. And salvation comes through Jesus. Abraham came to the place where he totally believed these promises. Uh, he had received the promises. He knew that there would be a land of Israel. He knew that there would be a nation. If there's going to be a nation, then he must have an offspring. He knew that there would be a blessing that would come ultimately through the Messiah to the world. This covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is by far, I believe, and others, the most important portion of Scripture for understanding the rest of the Bible. Dr. Charles Feinberg, and we will excuse him for calling the land covenant the Palestinian covenant, um, but he said this, Yet another privilege was the covenants. And he, he wrote about the Palestinian covenant prior to the Palestinians 
1964. I think this was like the 50s he did this. And um, everybody in the world accepted that landmass as Palestine. They were wrong, but that's what it was known as. Charles Feinberg said this. He was a Jewish believer. Yet another privilege was the covenants given to Abraham and the Jewish people. All the covenants beginning with Abraham, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New, were made with Israel. The first was wholly unconditional and one of promise. It is the all-embracing covenant. That's the Abrahamic covenant. For according to it, all the families of the earth are to be blessed in Abraham's seed, which is Christ. The Mosaic was a conditional covenant and hence was broken. The Palestinian made possession and occupancy of the land, the right of ownership to which was included in the Abrahamic covenant, contingent upon obedience to God while in the land. For this reason, Israel can now still have right of title to Palestine, the land of Israel, <clears throat> and yet not occupy it. Now, again, he's writing, uh, I think, even prior to Israel becoming a nation. So this goes back many years. Um, it was a conditional covenant and was broken by Israel. The Davidic covenant assured Israel that of the seed of David, they would have a king to reign in Jerusalem during the millennial age. It was an unconditional covenant proceeding from God's tender love for David, a man after his own heart. <clears throat> the new was also an unconditional covenant, but has never been received by Israel as a nation. This covenant assures redemption from sin through the Savior Christ Jesus. All the unconditional covenants are still in force because they are dependent upon God for their fulfillment. All the conditional covenants have been broken by the disobedience of Israel. Go to the next page. The next phrase, he offered up his only begotten son. Abraham received the promises. He had come to his life that he could believe them totally, trusting in God. And he showed that by offering up his only begotten son. Now, in what way, and I think you should know, or hopefully you should know, in what way was Abraham's, was Isaac Abraham's only son, since Ishmael was also his son, son of the promise. Because all the promises to Abraham were wrapped up, and we'll look at that shortly, in Isaac, not Ishmael. Now the Muslim world gets it backwards. Among the Muslims, there are two views of which son Abraham <coughs> took to Mount Moriah, since the Koran only says the son. And by the way, we know it's Mount Moriah, but some of them believe it was actually Mecca. So, be that as it may. But there are two views among Muslims. Uh, in the Koran, it doesn't say which son, it only says the son was taken to be offered for sacrifice. Uh, it doesn't name that son. Surah 37, uh, 99 through 106, chapter 37. Verses 99 through 106. Doesn't name the son. Just says the son. So, there, there are two views among Muslims. The earlier Muslim writers, centuries ago, say the son was Isaac. 
which would follow along with a biblical account. Later Muslim writers, that means today, and for many, many decades now, they say, no, the, oh, that son was Ishmael. Now here's their reasoning. And this comes from an article by Sam Shamoon titled Abraham and the Child Sacrifice, Sacrifice Isaac or Ishmael. Now this is an answering, this is an, uh, answering Islam's claims. But here's what he says. And this comes from, uh, translated from uh, Ismail Raj Al-Faruqi, the Islamic book Trust Kuala Lumpur, American Trust Publishers, 1976, if you're interested. Okay. Historians of this period disagree on the matter of Abraham, Abraham's sacrifice of Ishmael. Did the event take place before the birth of Ishak, Isaac, or after, thereafter? Did it take place in Palestine or in the Hejaz, which would be Saudi Arabia today? Jewish historians insist that the sacrificial son was Isaac, not Ishmael. This is not the place to analyze this issue. In his book, Kisas al-Hanbiad, Shaikh Ab al-Wahab al-Najjar, we'll call him Mr. Smith, concluded that the sacrificial son was Ishmael. His evidence was drawn from the Quran itself, where the sacrificial son is described as being Abraham's unique son, which could only be Ishmael, and only as long as Isaac was not yet born. Now, in, in the Genesis account, it says his only son, so his unique son. And the Quran says the same thing, and so this guy reasons, well, it's got to be Ishmael. Because if he's his unique son, then it obviously has to be, uh, speaking of Ishmael, and it has to be pre the birth of Isaac. So let me read on. For with the birth of Isaac, Abraham would have no unique son but two, Ishmael and Isaac. But to accede to this evidence implies that the sacrifice should have taken place in Palestine. This would equally be true in case the sacrificial son was Isaac, for the latter remained with his mother, Sarah, in Palestine and never left for the Jaws. On the other hand, the report which makes the sacrifice take place on the mountain of Mina near Makkah identifies the sacrificial son as Ishmael. The Quran did not mention the name of the sacrificial son, and hence Muslim historians disagree in this regard. So his argument, and many of the latter-day uh, Muslims who argued for it to be Ishmael, well, it's got to be uh, an only son, uh, a unique son, as he puts it here. And uh, so it has to happen before Isaac is born, because when Isaac is born, that means Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. So to have an only son, it's got to be Ishmael. Um, and it's before uh, Mount Moriah and that whole type of thing, so it must have taken place in what we would call Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so when the Quran says the unique son, uh, obviously, logically, it's speaking of Ishmael. Yes. 
I think they do. I, I think they accept the account, the historical account, that type of thing. Um, uh, although, if it is according to this, it doesn't really matter. Because, it, as he's saying, it's got to be before Isaac is born. Because then, because when you have two sons, then you don't have only one son, you no unique son. So in that case, it wouldn't really matter. But I presume that they do. I don't know for sure on that. But they believe Mary gave, had a virgin birth. So Mary could have a virgin birth and Jesus was born of a virgin, according to the Quran. That's not any, any, any difficult. So. Now, obviously we know the error there. Um, the uniqueness of it. Um, and verse 18 goes into this. Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's the uniqueness. God only gave Abraham one son of promise. One son who the Abrahamic covenant promises would come through. It was Abraham not through Ishmael, Abraham through Isaac. And that's why he's called the only son of Abraham. He was the son of promise. He was the son of covenant. Now Ishmael would be blessed. Ishmael would get uh, some blessings. But the son of promise comes through Isaac. And ultimately, it would come through Judah and then through David. Uh, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. Look at Genesis chapter 28, 10, 13, and 14. Jacob went out from Beersheba, and went toward Haran. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou liest to thee will I give it, and to your offspring, your seed. And thy seed, your offspring, shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. In thee and in your seed, Jacob, shall all families of the earth be blessed. The same language given to Abraham, the promise continues through Isaac and then through Jacob. And then in Genesis 49 of all the tribes, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and on him shall the gathering of the people be. The, the scepter, the ruling staff, that would be coming from Judah. Shiloh is more than likely here just another name for the Messiah until Shiloh come. But he's coming from the tribe of Judah, and then he is coming from the family of David. Psalm 89. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant, who is from the tribe of Judah. Thy seed will I establish forever. And build up thy throne to all generations. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore. My covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make endure forever. His throne is the days of heaven. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take away from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will, not, will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. 
The covenant ultimately comes through David, the Davidic covenant. That's the promises that Abraham knew, Abraham understood, Abraham embraced. So turn to the last verse on the back of this sheet. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure or a picture. Now, Hebrews 11 clearly states that Abraham, more than willing to offer Isaac, because he knew that even if he killed Isaac, if he went through with that, God would have to raise him up from the dead because the promises that God had made to him come through Isaac. He was more than willing to do it because he knew God would have to rise and raise him from the dead. Now, when we read the account in Hebrews, it's very clear. Um, and he became a figure. He became a picture, ultimately. From whence also he, he received him in a, in a figure. Now, what is that picture or figure that we get out of Abraham and Isaac? Father and son. Father offering his son as a sacrifice. The heavenly father offered his son, Jesus, as a sacrifice. But look at the account in Genesis chapter 22. You have the command. You have obedience uh, of Abraham. Then you have the sacrifice, and then you have the future promises of the sacrifice given by God. Look at the command. And this is from the account in Genesis 22. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt, and then the better word would be test, tried. God tempts no one, James says. See, he had gone through all kinds of trials in his life, all kinds of situations, and, and again, he had flunked a number of them, he was not as faithful as he should have been, but he had come to that point now in his life that he could totally trust in the Lord. And so he is now tested. So he tells Abraham, or he calls out onto him, and Abraham says, here, here I am, God. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. There's the word. <coughs> thine only son, the son of promise, not that Isaac wasn't born, as the Quran doesn't name the child, so it has to be Ishmael. No, the son of promise, <clears throat> whom you loves. So was this difficult for him? Sure, it had to be, but he did it unflinchingly. Whom thou loves, get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I'll tell thee of. There's the command. Take your son, Take Isaac, you love him. He's the son of promise, in other words. Take him to a mountain in Moriah. I'll show you that mountain. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Abraham obeys. Look at three through six. Abraham rose up early in the morning. This is why I say there was no hesitation on his part. He rose up early. He couldn't wait to begin his journey. He rose up early in the morning. He saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son, clave the wood for the burnt offering. He rose up and went on to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, 
of his travels. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. <clears throat> Somehow God communicated him that particular mountaintop in the land of Moriah. So Abraham said to his young men, these are the servants, Abide ye here with the ass, the donkey. And no, notice the wording of verse 5, the end of verse 5, what he says to the servants. I and the lad will go yonder. I and the lad will worship. I and the lad will come again to you. That's the structure. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, worship is always based biblically on a blood sacrifice, a blood offering. Who in this case is going to be the sacrifice? Isaac. And when you offered that sacrifice, you slit its throat, you came across the jugular vein, and that sacrifice was dead. We don't need Hebrews 11 in the sense of knowing that Abraham had knew exactly what was going to happen if he would have to take his son. I and the lad are going to go. You stay here. I and the lad are going to worship. Yes, we have to have a sacrifice to worship God. He believed that God was going to require him to sacrifice Isaac. But I and the lad will come again, meaning obviously what? If I have to kill Isaac as a sacrifice to worship you, he will raise him from the dead. He had come to the point in his life that he totally believed what God said. You're the, you're, the, you're the father of the promises. This is the son of promise. This is the only son. So if you have to kill him, you, he will be raised from the dead. So they went. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and knife, and they went both of them together. The command is God's word. The obedience is clearly seen. He heard the word of God. He acted on it. He didn't hesitate. He didn't argue. He just obeyed what God told him to do. We now come to the sacrifice. Isaac spoke unto Abraham, his father, said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac unquestionably was raised in the things of God. Abraham taught him, I'm sure from his youth up, about sacrifice, about worship, about the God of Israel, the God of eternity, or the God of Israel to come, as it were. Israel is not yet here but he certainly knew him, and he taught Isaac. So, so Isaac questions, where's the lamb? Now, this is the first mention, by the way, of a lamb in the Bible. They have sacrifices prior to this. Could have been a lamb, we don't know. But this is the first time that the, the, a lamb is mentioned uh, in the Scripture, in Genesis chapter 22. But Isaac wanted to know, we've got to worship. Where's the sacrifice? Verse 8, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. God will provide himself a lamb. 
Now, a lot of the Jewish um, translations have God will provide for himself a lamb. Uh, I, I think it's pretty direct and to the point as it's written here, God will provide himself as that lamb. See, this is ultimately a figure. You know, we're going to look at John one twenty nine. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he pointed to him and said, what, behold, it's down in your paper there, the Lamb of God. Abraham tells Isaac, God will provide himself for a lamb. They went both of them together. And Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham at this point was, I believe, close to 130 years of age or more. I don't think that Isaac was a teenager. I think Isaac was a young man. I think Isaac was 30, 31, 32, perhaps 33 years of age. Do you have a question? Yeah, most people do. I don't have it at the tip of my tongue. I do have it, um, but I don't have it right now. So, but I, if if I can find it quickly when we're we're over, I'll give you a copy of it that you can read it. Um, but most people think he's a teenager. I don't think so. I think um, I think he's in his probably in his late twenties, at least early thirties. Um, and if he is a figure of what's to come, what is his likely age? Thirty-three. Because what was the age of the Jesus? Thirty-three. Um, that means Abraham was an old man. I mean, certainly you lived older in those days. But he didn't live much past the age of, what was Abraham when he died? 160, 170, something like that? Pardon? 140, maybe 140, I forget what it was. So he, didn't, he, he, was, he was at the, at the end of his life. Um, ultimately, Isaac is going to be asked to lay on the altar knowing then that he's going to be sacrificed. I don't know any 130-year-old man can outrun a 30-year-old young man. So the faith of Isaac should be commended here as well. But God will provide himself. He would be that lamb for a burnt offering. And they went both of them together. They came to the place, verse 9, which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Isaac knew what was happening. Isaac willingly allowed him to bind him. I think the binding of Isaac uh, was not to keep him from running away. I mean, if he wanted to run away, he could have run away right prior to this when Abraham came and said, let me bind you. Let me tie you up. I think this was a merciful act uh, because when he would bring that knife down across probably his jugular vein and, and cut it to make the... Uh, the death is as swift as possible. The natural inclination of somebody, if a knife is coming down across your jugular vein, is to go what? You know, something like that. Or, or turn, your turn your head away. Uh, and if you turn it away, you're, you're maybe not going to have that swift death. And I think this was to immobilize Isaac so the death would be swift and quickly. So he bound Isaac... And then he stretched forth his hand, verse 10, and he took the knife to slay his son. He was willing to do it. 
And the angel of the Lord, verse 11, called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon thy lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So the angel of the Lord said, okay, stop, Abraham. You've proven yourself. You have faith. You fear God. You trust God. You revere God. Your faith is in God, that you're even willing to give your son as a sacrifice so you don't have to slay him. You know, I, I, I've heard stories in the past, you know, when children have been called to go overseas to serve the Lord somewhere and the parents put so much pressure on them not to go and they back out and don't go. Because, well, if you go overseas and you go to wherever you go and you're, you're so far away, and especially years ago when you didn't have airplanes to travel like that and you had to take ships and so on, what happens when the grandchildren are born? I'm not going to see my grandchildren. You know, so, you know, I don't go, you know, and, and Abraham was, was willing to kill his son. A lot of parents today won't give them up for a moment uh, to God and what God has for them, tragically, sadly. Don't kill your son, you've proven it to me. Then verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, go back to verse 8. What did God pro promise that he would provide? Underline it, highlight it, and it's on a piece of paper. It's not your Bible. Or you can do it in your Bible if you want. You know, God promised a lamb. Look at verse 13. What did he provide? A ram. Is there a difference? Yes. One is innocent, first year. The other is full-grown and has horns. Uh, lamb doesn't have grown horns. And so God provided a ram. What did he promise? A lamb. Because God will provide himself as that lamb sometime in the future. But now, Abraham, since you have shown yourself faithful, you don't have to kill your son. You don't have to offer your son as a sacrifice. I will provide a substitute in his place. And he did so they could still worship God. He provided a ram. And then here's the promise. Verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah the Lord Jireh will provide, future tense. So they call the name of that place, God will provide. In the future, God will provide a lamb in that place. And then in the last part of verse 14, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen, Mount Moriah. And it will be seen on Mount Moriah that God has provided himself as that lamb. That's exactly what happened some 2,000 years from this time of Abraham and Isaac when Jesus came and John the Baptist saw him and he said unto him, Behold, here's the Lamb. Here's the promised Lamb. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. 
And in John 19, 16 through 18, they delivered he, him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, they led him away, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, or we call it Calvary today, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. The interesting thing about Golgotha or Calvary, which at the time of Jesus was a separate mountain. And Jesus would not have been, um, I don't believe, sacrificed on the mountain. But one of my, one of my, I love going to Israel. There's a lot of reasons I love going to Israel. But I, I, I love the last day. As we go to the garden tomb, and, and we have communion and, and, and all that takes place around the garden tomb. But I always mention to the people, I, I said, right, right, we're right, we're outside of the city. And, and Jesus had to be crucified outside the city. That, that's biblical. Um, but as you, as you sit and, and the, in this very nice garden and as you go down to the, um, I guess it would be the southern end I, I, uh, of the garden and then you see um, over the railing, you see, uh, as you're looking, Golgotha on the left, the place of the skull. And right below it is a bus station. And then on the right, you see Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. And uh, the place of the skull, years ago, it's been eroded by rain and that. It's, you can faintly see the skull, the, 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 the nose and the eyes and the mouth today, not as well as 40 or 50 years ago. But I always mention to people that Golgotha was initially the northernmost part of Mount Moriah. So, and a couple of hundred years before the time of Jesus, they cut it out because it was a sloped hill and you didn't want an army to be on the top of the hill be able to come on over against the walls and climb over it very easy. So they cut it out. They made a valley. And uh, today it's a bus stop. In the time of Jesus, it was uh, a road that went through. Uh, and you can see very clearly when you look how it was sheared. It's not natural. It's cut. Probably Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, but on the bottom of Golgotha, on the roadway, because it was a lesson to the people all the passersby had to see. But the important point is that was part of Moriah. Here's Moriah. They cut down. Jesus would have died here. So that's still Moriah, even though Moriah has been removed, part of it, anyway. On the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Clearly, the mountaintop being talked about here is Moriah. The scholars believe that it's the Holy Sepulchre. I am so glad I'm not a scholar. It doesn't fit. The, the only place. Now, in the New Testament, in the later scriptures, uh, it talks about Golgotha. It talks about Calvary on that mountain, you know, on the, you know like we just read. Uh, bearing his cross, went into a place called the place of his skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. 
Uh, they crucified him as two others on either side. One, Jesus in the midst. They talk about Golgotha, the letter of Calvary, uh, that type of thing. <clears throat> but it has to be, according to Genesis 22, which is the only place it tells where Jesus has to be crucified, is on Moriah, where the lamb has to be offered, is on Mount Moriah. It tells us in the, in the New Testament that it's on Golgotha or Calvary or there at that base. But it has to be Moriah. According to Genesis 22, verse 14, in the mount of the Lord, Moriah, it shall be seen. It cannot be the Holy Sepulchre. It can't be. I don't care what reasons you give. I don't care what Roman king's mother uh, or emperor's mother thought it was, should be the place and bought it and built a church there. Catherine, around three or 400 A.D.? You know. I'd rather believe Moses than Catherine. It's not the Holy Sepulchre. We don't go to the Holy Sepulchre when I take tours to Israel. This is the reason. Why go to an idolatrous place, and it is, if you ever saw it, how many of you have been to the Holy Sepulchre? It is terrible, right? It's just, it's heart-wrenching. It, it is so dark um, when you can go to what I believe is the biblical location. Abraham believed God. He believed what he said. He acted on it, even to the giving of the Son. What an example he is for each one of us to believe God. Don't doubt the word of God. It's true. It's going to come to pass. Everything God said is going to happen. may not be in our lifetime. Abraham knew the promises but never saw them come to fruition, but he never doubted them. It may come to pass some of these in our lifetime, but they will come to pass. Don't ever doubt the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Okay, let's pray, and then we've got some great sukhanyot. You're going to enjoy that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you. For Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-975-4433. Shalom.